we look this morning at the story of Stephen before the council, and we found ourselves admiring his courage, but nothing that was just simply welled up within him by his own character. Of course, his dependence upon God, <clears throat> which then allowed for the power of God to flow through him in a very special way. As we look into chapter 7 tonight, we're going to see the amazing message that Stephen delivers before the council. It, at first glance, appears to be sort of a history lesson, but it's a history lesson with exhortation. It's a history lesson, biblically speaking, that confronts these people, these individuals before whom he stands, with the truth and the reality that uh, they are not willing to uh, look at for themselves, lest someone force them to do so. This is a lengthy chapter, it's 60 verses in total. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote to Timothy as a pastor there in the town of Ephesus. In the first epistle he wrote, he said, Till I come, give attention to reading and to exhortation and to doctrine. It wasn't just his own personal reading. That was referring to the public reading of Scripture. And so I think it would be of great benefit to us to read this entire chapter tonight, get the full impact of God's Word in this way. But I will allow you to remain seated as I read this passage of Scripture out loud. Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, Then said the high priest, Are these things so? He, being Stephen, said, Men and brethren, fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dealt in Haran, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come unto the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran, and from thence Whence his father was dead, he removed into this land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Haran and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent our, out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. 
Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried over into Sechem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham brought, or bought rather, for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Sichem. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. In which time Moses was born, and was exceeding fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up, and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, your brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begot two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and he drew near to behold it. The voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy foot, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt. And I have heard their groanings, and I am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. After that he showed them wonders and signs in the lands of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses, which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. Like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel, which spake to him in Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, who received the lively oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again unto Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. 
And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him an house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Ye stiff-necked, and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before of the coming of the Just One, of whom ye ha have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What a scene. What a message. As he gives the word of God to the point that he makes very pointed application at the end. Verse 50, everything changes right there where he changes from what the Scripture says to this is what the point of all that is about. Human logic would suggest that if we want to gain more people in a following, we need to soften the parts of our message that are abrasive, that don't match with the natural thinking of people to minimize our differences and accentuate our sameness. I think 
there is a case to be made for being tactful, but never at the expense of setting aside the accuracy of what the gospel is all about. If one is overly precise about the gospel, some would say, well, there may be those that are driven away because they may interpret the message of the gospel as offensive. There have been times that I've given the gospel to people as sweetly as I know how to give it, and yet as they listen to it, they, they realize that this is very much different than the way they think. And it sounds a little bit arrogant on our parts to suggest that what we're saying is right and what they believe is not right if they don't believe the gospel, if they don't follow Jesus Christ as he is presented in the scripture. And yet we must realize that God has one way, one method of man coming to Christ. It's not really about us. We're simply the messengers. The emphasis on man's sinful condition cannot be eradicated. We must point that out. The singularity of it being through Christ cannot be blurred. And even more on the justification by faith alone, that continues to narrow the field of the way people accept coming to Christ. Because there are people who say, oh yes, I know that you're, I'm a sinner. And no, I believe that you have to believe in Jesus dying on the cross. But getting down to that point of it's by faith alone, that it's in grace alone, by God's grace, in Christ alone, and it's getting very narrow, that's where some people begin to take exception with what we're saying. It is as if we're hoping that people would be qualified based on their current thinking if we try to soften our message. Oh, well, maybe God will accept them. I remember a famous evangelist who had a heart for people many years back being interviewed by someone who was one of these all-encompassing people, sort of what we would call a universalist, that if you simply believe God, that that in of itself is enough to get you into heaven. And this person said that, you know, well, do you believe that there is this wideness in God's mercy. That was the quote that was used. And he affirmed that this, this heretical preacher that was holding to this universalist position, that he said, yes, I do believe that it wasn't necessary for men to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ personally themselves in order to get to heaven. This is often the case where people begin to be swayed more by the popularity of thinking than it is by the importance of what God says to be true. Truth be told, as we see in Scripture, if people are getting the truth, there is going to be conviction. There is going to be squirming. There is going to be an uncomfortableness that goes on. Why? Because there needs to be conversion. There needs to be a change. If a person's in Christ, they become new creatures. And this wonderful transformation is not without its pain of shedding the old man. Pride takes a stubborn kick when someone comes into the kingdom of God. And it's a good kick. The example of Stephen gives us some direction in the importance 
of not mincing our words when presenting the gospel. My, my thoughts tonight as I read this passage of Scripture is for us to realize that when we come to opportunities, divine appointments, that it is an incredible mistake on our part to begin to soften the message of the gospel, to take the point out of it simply because we don't want to offend people by the gospel. And so we want to confront people for the purpose of conviction coming to play. Because if there's not conviction, there won't be true conversion. So what do lost people need from us as witnesses of the gospel? I have several points, and I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on any one of these. But as I read this story and how Stephen ends up at the end of this, driving home his point, I see several lessons about what lost people need. The first one is this. Lost people need to be confronted by spirit-filled and word-filled believers that are always ready. It is doubtful that Stephen pulled out any notes that day. You know, hold on, guys. I got my sermon here somewhere. Not to say that that's a problem. I've got notes in front of me as I'm speaking to you tonight. But we shouldn't feel like I can't engage in a divine appointment simply because we don't have our, our auxiliary helps around us. As I mentioned this morning, we have the primary help. All we really need is the Holy Spirit. He will at those moments give us the help and aid we need, even the very words in our mouth that we need to give. <coughs> the Bible tells us in verse 55 of this chapter, Stephen was full of the Holy Ghost. As I mentioned today, doesn't mean that he had all of the Holy Ghost. He always had all of the Holy Ghost, but it means that the Holy Ghost had all of him. He was controlled. And in his lengthy explanation of the Old Testament, verses 2 through 50, he shows that he was a student of the Bible. There's no way that Stephen could go on and give this discourse as he does so wonderfully making the points along the way that needed to be emphasized for the application that he makes at the end without first being someone who knew the Scriptures intimately himself. I'm reminded by what Peter encourages and admonishes all of us that we are in 1 Peter 3.15 to sanctify, set apart the Lord God in our hearts, give Him that special place of honor and devotion in our hearts, and therefore then be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh us a reason of the hope that lies within us with a spirit of meekness and fear. Always ready. Doesn't mean that you say, but you know, I just can't remember those verses that you typically use to lead someone to Christ. That's okay. Do you know your testimony? Do you know the general story? As you, as you looked, and one of the reasons I read through this, Stephen is giving a synopsis. He doesn't quote any real specific verses, though he does quote certain phrases. And I would dare say most of us sitting here tonight can share the stories of the Bible. It's amazing how God can use that in our hearts if we just say, Lord, I am available. I am available. Use me. But we need to be controlled people by the Holy Spirit. We need to be regularly in the Word. You will be surprised, as I am sometimes, 
when I'm in the middle of something and a verse will come into my mind in that conversation that I haven't read recently, nor did I maybe take and purposely try to commit to memory, but it just sort of bubbled up and I think, where in the world did that come from? Well, I know where it came from. It was the promise of Jesus from the book of Luke that he would give into my mouth at that moment what I needed. He'll do the same for you. What else do lost people need? They need to be faced with the fact that not only are they wrong in their position as a lost person, but they are wrong in their process of evaluating their position. Now, that might sound a little confusing, but I think this is really important for us to understand when we're looking at lost people and talking with them. We understand that what they believe isn't right because otherwise they'd be a Christian. But the problem isn't just their position they hold, it's how they look at themselves and how they evaluate their position. And, and he addresses this in verses 51 and 52 and, and 53. And notice how strong he is about this. Their entire line of thinking is flawed, is what Stephen is getting at. The Jewish audience before Stephen was convinced that they were the spiritually elite simply by ethnicity. And this was something that often came up. And Stephen doesn't give them one piece of credit for this as far as standing before God in heaven. In fact, he tells them, you're actually very stiff-necked and, and you pride yourself at being circumcised physically, but your hearts and your ears are not set apart in a special way. There's this duplicity about them, this falseness about them, and they took great pride in thinking, we're okay because we have adhered to what Moses' law stipulated here, but they're missing it in the internal areas where God is most inspecting of. In fact, when the prophets were sent by God, they didn't like to hear the conviction that they spoke with either. And so they would throw them in pits. They would put them in shackles. They would dismiss them. They would say, oh, you never have anything good to say about me. Rather than to consider, I need to take heed to this man, for he brings to me the message of God above. I remember a long time ago meeting and speaking with a gentleman who was a retired highway patrolman, state patrolman, and he had no relationship with God to speak of. I used the opportunity. He seemed to want to engage in conversation, and so I tried to turn it to the things of the gospel, and I used an analogy with him, trying to always look for common ground, you know, and I thought about how officers often call for, for backup and he dismissed it saying, oh, that's not real life. You know, you've been watching too many cop shows or something like that, you know. And he was trying to dismiss my, my attempts at bridging the gospel into his life. He also had a skepticism that anyone could know the truth. Yeah, you know, truth is relative. You've probably heard that from people before. And I pointed out to him that his, his approach was to not search for truth since he was uncertain about it. He wasn't even bothering to look. He just, he just sort of labeled it. Well, you know, it's uncertain. 
And so that sort of gave him a freedom not to consider the truth, not to investigate. When actually logic would suggest that since he didn't know the truth, he ought to be more poised to look for the truth than ever. You see, he not only had the wrong position, he was wrong in the process of evaluating his position. It's what the Bible calls willingly ignorant of. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4 says, Paul talks about people like this. He says, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Why? Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. There is a darkness, but there is also a refusal to stop being in darkness by the lost people. And so we need to even bring this to people's attention. The foolishness of their way of looking at their unsaved positions. Thirdly, lost people need to be faced with their obstinacy in yielding to the truth. I'm, I'm not saying that you might not even want to use the word obstinate, but they're very resolute at the very least. Stephen calls them what? Stiff necked. That was a good word that was used even in the Old Testament by the prophets. What does that mean exactly? Well, it, it pictures someone who has cast their gaze in a fixed position and is unwilling to turn their head in another direction to determine if there is a path other than the one that they're following on. In other words, this is what I've made up my mind to do, and don't talk to me about anything else. Well, we ought to be resolute when we're on the path of truth. But as Stephen is pointing out here, have you considered this? We ought to be able to look at our path and say, but, but my path that I'm on stands up against what you're saying. But what these people were doing was saying, no, I don't even want to hear what you have to say. I like the path that I'm following. It's a convenient, comfortable path. The Jews did not characterize themselves in this way, of course. They witnessed, yeah, we're stiff-necked people. Because they had the scriptures and they worshiped Jehovah. Much of what they believed was true, and that's always the danger, right? If you want to mislead someone, give them enough truth that they feel substantiated, feel right in their position, but mix the error in so that it doesn't help them and it pollutes their position. That's where they were. I mean, they had the scriptures and they stood on the scriptures, but they missed the point when it came to Christ being the fulfillment of those scriptures. It's kind of like putting together some sort of uh, baking project, like a cake. You can have all the correct ingredients for making a cake, sugar, eggs, baking powder, etc. And you put them all in at the right times and you mix them. But if I'm doing that and I miss, say, something like flour, it's not the problem of what's in the concoction that I've made, the problem is what has been omitted and left out. I may end up with something that I might even try to eat, but you couldn't call it cake. And I think we need to realize that that's where people are in their beliefs. 
You think, well, that's the major thing. Well, truthfully, if you've got all the scriptures and you follow the scriptures, but you miss out on Christ, you've missed the main ingredient. And what you have may be a religion, but isn't Christianity. Nicodemus was a man who was willing to consider that he was lacking something. He found himself mulling things over, and then he went to the Lord at night with these questions. And we do have an inkling by what happens at the end as he shows up at the death of Christ and helps in the preparation of Christ's body for the burial, that perhaps he did come to the light of the glorious gospel after that moment. You know, one does not need to be Jewish to be obstinate in spirit. Consider the the contrast of Pilate and the Roman centurion there at the crucifixion. Pilate had his pride and his position, which kept him from openly considering the claims of Christ there in John 19, verse 10, even saying, what is truth? And yet here was the Roman centurion at the foot of the cross, looking up in a very awkward situation where an execution of a criminal is taking place and he makes the confession, truly this man was the son of God. He got it. He understood. He was willing to drop his pretense and his pride. and He walked away spiritually a wealthy man. What else do lost people need? They need to be faced with the teaching of God's active pursuit of them. Stephen accuses these people at the end of his message as resisting the Holy Ghost. It implies that God has been pursuing them. And yet they have been putting God off. He is also teaching that God is actively working in their lives to draw them to himself. It's said of Lydia in Acts chapter 16, we'll get there eventually, that the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. It reminds me of what Jesus said, that no man could come unto him except the Father which had sent him draw them. There is a spiritual divine working that God must do in the lives of a person for conversion to take place. Yes, you and I must be ambassadors, but God must divinely work for salvation to occur. I believe that's what God was doing in Lydia's life. The message of the gospel was given. She was gloriously saved. Several years back, I was in the kitchen while my wife was preparing supper, and uh, I had come out, and I forget what we were having, but I was uh, trying to assist, and uh, we needed jam, and uh, our children were small. Caleb was just a little shaver at the time. He's 20 today, hard to believe, but uh, so I'd gotten the, the jelly and the jam or whatever it was out of the refrigerator, and of course it's something you don't use every day, at least at our house, and so I started to open the lid, and I think it had, that particular one had one of the mason jar lids on it uh, with the ring and then the sealed lid, and it was not budging, and so I remembered you know, a trick, you go over to the sink and pour some, get the hot water going and you just hold it under that stream of hot water. And then I started to open it, but Caleb was standing there watching me and he was, you know, Daddy, you can't open that, you know, you're, you know, making comments, I think, like, you know, aren't you strong enough and things like that. 
So before I tried, after, after taking on the line, I said, well, maybe you better try. Of course, I could hear it crackling and that, that, that sugar that had gotten into the threads of it and stuff had broken up now and had been solvent under that water. And so I gave it to him and he just one turn and boy, his face just lit up. Wow, you know, he was strong, you know. He could do what daddy couldn't do in that way. You know, when we get saved in our, from our lost condition to our babe in Christ condition, you know, we might think, oh, I prayed and I got saved, you know. But as we mature and we look back on it, we realize, you know what? <laughs> it wasn't me. It was God that unscrewed that for me. It was the Holy Spirit loosening what I needed to have done. No man, John 6, 44 says, can come to the Father except, or come unto me except the Father draw him. What else do lost people need? They need to be faced with the danger of following tradition without scrutiny. Tradition has its place. We ought not abandon that which is a good, solid practice, but tradition, as we continue to follow it, ought to always stand up under scrutiny. Sometimes it is better and more wise, wiser I should say, to change practice and not just follow tradition for tradition's sake. The main reason people have the belief system that they do is because sometimes of family. How many times I've talked with someone and say, well, you know, this is what my, my parents and their grandparents always believed and it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. Well, I honor and I respect their respect for family and authority, that's great. But then I'll ask, did you ever know them to be wrong about anything in life? You know, one thing is true is God's never wrong. And then I'll often ask them, you know, some extreme example, because sometimes people would be in some form of uh, religious movement here in the States and say, you know, well, what if you'd been born into a Muslim family in the Middle East? They would feel the same way. Well, this is what my parents taught me. Would you say that they're right and they're going to follow the truth just because their parents taught them that? So the, we need to be able to examine things on saying, but is this right scripturally regardless of what our forefathers has done? And in fact, Stephen in verse 51, he points this out. He says, as your fathers did, so do ye. But what the fathers were doing was not a good thing. And they're following wrongly in their footsteps. Consider the message of John the Baptist in Matthew 3, verses 7 through 10. The Jews were confident in their heritage. They would say, well, we have Abraham. That's That's all we need. We have this lineage. We're, we're following through ethnically from Abraham's seed. But if they were not bearing fruit personally, that was a vain attachment he was trying to point out to them. You know, there is a comfort in what is familiar. You know, we don't want to move off the status quo. But there's also an unpleasantness if forsaking what is held by those with whom you have had meaningful relationships. There have been those people that I've sat down and give the gospel to and walked them through it and they've been able to answer things and you could see the light bulbs turning on in their minds and, and, and agreeing in many ways. But then when it came to the moment of decision to put their faith in Jesus Christ, they realized, wait, if I 
do this, I am most likely alienating myself in a, a major way from everyone that I am close to. And there are people then that, that walk away sorrowfully because they have great families, great possessions. They're not willing to pay the cost for the truth. Ultimately, there is difficulty in simply admitting that I have not been correct. You know, if what someone may say to you, if what you're saying is so, then you're telling me I've been wrong all my life. Well, I was too before I met Jesus. But do you want to stay wrong? A pastor friend of mine once said this, it is not truth because I believe it, but I believe it because it is true. Truth is true. And if you choose not to align yourself with it, that doesn't make it false. It remains true. As the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. And then also, what do lost people need? They need to be faced with what their response signifies. Stephen points out the history of how God sent proclaimers of truth down through the ages, but then how people ultimately silenced them because they didn't want to hear the message. And, and they do that with Stephen. I mean, they're stopping their ears. This is the epitome of someone going, la, 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 I don't hear you. Moses was threatened with stoning when they didn't like what he had to say. Elijah was pursued by Jezebel when she was upset. Rather than her thinking, well, it was an amazing thing that happened on Mount Carmel. Maybe I better totally rethink my religion. No. I'm going to get rid of Elijah. Isaiah was sawn asunder. Jeremiah told, was told not to marry because of the hardship of his ministry. You know, bring a wife into that. Zechariah, according to Matthew 23, 35, was slain between... The altar, it's not an easy thing to be a prophet of God. They were not considered celebrities. The question should be asked, if the message they spoke was not true, then why not just ignore them, right? I mean, if it isn't true, just let it go. The fact that the people responded with such anger showed that they were convicted by the truth of the message. So where are we? Are we sometimes hesitant to present the gospel in all its abrasiveness? Not shaving it off? Not soft-pedaling it? You know, we need to realize the importance of standing without apology for the truth. Because that is the only thing that will help people. If we begin to dilute it, or pollute it, or change it, it's not the gospel. We've changed it into something else. A faithful Christian soldier went to ask his chaplain for advice once, and he, he said this. He says, last night, chaplain, when I knelt by my bed and prayed, the fellows in the company began to ridicule me and throw their shoes at me. What should I do? <laughs> well, said the chaplain, why don't you stop kneeling down? Just lie down on your bed and Lift your heart to God in silence, and he'll hear you all the same. After a few days, the chaplain asked the soldier how he was faring with his evening prayers. Well, I'll tell you, Reverend, I followed your advice for the first three nights, but then my conscience began to bother me 
because I felt like I was betraying my Lord. So I began to kneel down as I did before. And what happened, the chaplain asked. I was really amazed. Now, not a single fellow ridiculed me. Now, the 15 men in my tent kneel down with me, and I pray aloud for all of them. Now, truth be told, we know that that doesn't happen in every case. There may be still some shoe throwers out there. We know that Daniel chose to continue to pray as he always prayed. And he ended up spending some time with the lions. But God even used that, did he not? To reach the king in a way that the king might not have been reached. Had Daniel not remained faithful, been courageous, say that, you know what? I want my life even to be a convicting influence. I'm not going to try to soften the truth because what people need is the truth because the truth is what sets people free. Father in heaven, help us to be truth tellers. Lord, may the abrasiveness not be in our personalities, our disposition, but Lord, we know that there is an offense to the truth of the gospel. But Lord, we also know that the gospel is your power of salvation. And so, Father, help us not to feel like it needs our help, that it needs our tweaking. And so, Father, may we encourage being full, controlled completely of the Holy Spirit, dependent upon you, as we are given those opportunities to share the gospel with people without second-guessing, what are people thinking of me? Will they like this message? Lord, help us to have the courage of an ambassador of Jesus Christ. We pray in his precious name. Amen.